Hi, good morning. Um, we are currently in a series on uh, the Gospel of John. And so if you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John's Gospel, and we're going to chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have a bunch back here on our resource table, just right over here to my left. And uh, feel free to grab one of those. We also have some ESV scripture journals back there for the Gospel of John. So if you're a note taker or a journaler, um, please feel free to hop up and grab one of those and follow along uh, in your notes this morning. John chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 22 this morning and read through the end of this chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Today we go back to the story of John the Baptist, who, as we have said uh, in previous weeks, um, is a pivotal figure in the story of Christ, because in many ways, the story of John the Baptist begins the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus in all of the Gospels really begins with John the Baptist, who is a forerunner to the ministry of Christ. And one of the things we talk a lot about around here is calling um, and I'm convinced that recognizing and articulating and stepping into or living out one's calling is a critical part of discipleship. It's a critical part of being an apprentice to Jesus, um, that a key part of being more like Christ is you stepping into the unique situations and circumstances that God has called you into. And one of the key verses that we appeal to in that understanding is Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10, which says, We are God's handiwork or craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good work, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Let me say that again. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good work, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And so as we step into this text today, I want us to just quickly remember three things about calling. First of all, everyone has what we would call a primary calling, and that is the call to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This call that is like universal, like it's, it is extended to the entire world, this call of the gospel, um, this call to make Jesus the Lord and master of your life. But then second, we also have what we could call a secondary calling. And that comes as a result of our primary calling. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works this relates more to our life situation. This relates to maybe our vocation, our gifting, our talents, our passions. If you say, God has called me to be a mom, that's a secondary calling in that it comes in light of your primary calling. In order for you to be the best mom you can be, right, it has to be rooted in you being a follower of Jesus Christ. God's called me to be a pastor. That's a secondary calling. And in order for me to be the best pastor I can be, right, I have to be rooted in Christ as a part of my primary calling. Um, secondary callings are normally multifaceted. It, it's not sufficient most of the time to just say, I am one thing. I am a mom. Um, I'm a dad. Because we all have a lot of things going on in our life. I'm a pastor, yes, but I'm also a husband. I'm also a father. I'm also a neighbor to my neighborhood. Um, and I'm called to be obedient to Jesus in all of these areas. And then third, secondary callings can change over time. The, the primary call never changes, this call to apprentice yourself to Christ, to make him your Lord and master. But your secondary call can change because you get into different seasons in life and different circumstances and different situations. Um, and we're to follow Christ no matter what the situation is, no matter what the circumstances are. Um, ten years from now, you may step into a completely different vocational season, and you're going to recognize that God's placed you there with purpose perhaps. Or two years from now, maybe you adopt a child. That's a massive shift of season. Or maybe you start fostering children. Big change, right? And God has purpose in all of those things. But that is to say that your secondary calling doesn't necessarily re remain static throughout your entire life. It is more malleable than our primary calling. Today, and this is the reason why I'm talking about this, today we are literally witnessing a change of season for John the Baptist. For most of his ministry, the focus has been on calling people to repentance, which has been symbolized by this baptism that he's been giving, but, but also it's been characterized by looking for the coming Messiah. John rightly sees himself as the one who is going before the Messiah, which is what he mentions to his disciples in our text today. And, and yet where we pick up, Jesus has now been revealed, and so John's influence is fading to a certain extent. And I think there is a great deal that most of us can potentially learn from John the Baptist today as he processes this season of change with his disciples. So look with me this morning, verse 22. 
After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So they're in Judea, which is uh, roughly the area in the southern part of Israel. It's the area around Jerusalem. And he remained there and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. So the first two words here in chapter in verse 22 are after this, after what? Well, after what has come before us here in chapter three, which is Jesus's exchange with the Pharisee Nicodemus, where he famously said, you must be born again. And what also has come before is that last paragraph, right before we got into this passage, which includes John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. Because Christ didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. That, that's what has come before where we are here. And we learn a couple of significant things immediately in this passage. First, we know that Jesus was baptized, right? He was baptized by John the Baptist. That was a, like a pivotal scene early on in the ministry of Jesus. But we typically don't picture Jesus baptizing people, right? We typically don't picture him out in the wilderness somewhere doing the work of baptizing. In fact, it is only here in John's gospel that we learn that baptism was even a part of Jesus's ministry at all. And yet later, at the beginning of chapter 4, which is what we'll look at next week, in verse 2, what John tells us is that Jesus himself did not actually do any of the baptizing, but rather his disciples were the ones who were baptizing. So it was sort of under the banner of Jesus and Jesus's ministry that baptisms were happening. But John makes it clear that Jesus himself was not personally baptizing people, but rather his disciples were actually the ones performing the baptisms. So that's, that's maybe just kind of an interesting factoid for us this morning. But then the second significant thing we see here is the last part of verse 24, which tells us that this was before John had been put in prison. Now, if you've got your Bible open, turn real quick with me over to the gospel of Mark. Turn back a couple books to Mark's gospel. And let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark was possibly the first gospel to be written. It's possible that it served as sort of a prototype for some of the other gospel writers. But as we've said, John's gospel is different in a variety of ways. And um, one of the ways is here. Mark chapter 1 verse 14 tells us, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Literally, the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Mark's gospel is something that comes later than what we're seeing in John's gospel today. And this is one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of the headings that have been added to many of our Bibles. So the ESV uh, Bible heads this passage in Mark chapter 1, this little paragraph here, as um, something like uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry um, or, or something to that effect. Um, Jesus begins his ministry, maybe is how it's worded. But that's not actually true. Like, it's not the beginning of Jesus's ministry. John tells us Jesus's ministry has already been going on. 
in the time prior to John being arrested. And so that can be a little bit misleading to us. In Mark's gospel, it's the beginning of Jesus's ministry, because Mark doesn't give us any account really before this period of time after John was arrested. But Jesus's ministry is larger and more expansive than just the time after John was arrested. Um, This is why the stories that we find at the beginning of John's gospel are not found anywhere else. They're not found in the so-called synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you think about the stories that we've been through thus far, um, one of the big ones is uh, what we sometimes call Jesus' first public miracle, um, which is when he's at the wedding at Cana and turns water into wine. Um, From there, Jesus uh, went into the temple in Jerusalem and ran all the money changers and drove all the animals out of the temple. It's the second significant thing that happens. Um, Third, he has this exchange with Nicodemus where he um, upends everything that this learned ruler of the Pharisees thinks about worshiping and following God when he tells him you must be born again. And, and then we come here to the end of chapter 3, and we see that Jesus' own ministry is superseding even that of John the Baptist, who was, I mean, literally like a celebrity in his day. I mean, all kinds of people were coming out to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And, and then this goes on in where we go next in chapter 4 with the exchange with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? None of these stories we find in any of the other Gospels because these stories are happening very early on in the ministry of Christ. And what many scholars point out, and I just think this is fascinating, is that each of these scenes that I'm talking about are scenes where Jesus is effectively fulfilling and surpassing Judaism. And um, this is what he said would happen in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He says, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says, I haven't come to do away with the old system. I haven't come to just say, oh, that's over now. He says, I've come to say that I am the completion of all of those things. I am everything that all of those things in the past, the law of Moses and and all of these rituals and, and holidays and feasts and all these things, everything has been pointing ahead to me. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. So, so if you think about this and what we've seen thus far, uh, the wedding at Cana, Jesus turns water into wine. Right. That's the big miracle. That's the big sign that he shows. Um, And what he does is he takes these huge stone jars that were filled with water and were used for Jewish ritual purification because they had all of these uh, hand washing, foot washing rituals that they would engage in. Takes these stone jars that are used for that purpose and he renders them useless by filling them with new wine. He is the new wine whose blood truly cleanses, truly purifies. I'm not just cleansing my hands or my feet, but instead through Christ, 
There is this new purification that is extended to me, this like once and for all purification. I never have to wash my hands again. I have to, never have to go through these processes again. Instead, he fully meets this need. He is the new wine that renders the need for the purification jars pointless. So Jesus is greater than the old wine. But then next, what happens? Jesus clears the temple. He goes in, he sees the money changers, he sees those who are selling animals for sacrifice. He makes a whip out of cords, he runs them out of the temple. And what he tells the indignant rulers of the temple um, is destroy this temple. This is back in chapter 2 of John, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so Jesus effectively eliminates the need for a physical temple, like a physical space where one goes to meet with God and make sacrifice because he is the sacrifice. He is the temple who is raised up after three days and thus becomes the way one meets God. As John will later say in chapter 14 uh, of Jesus, uh, he's the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So Jesus fulfills or surpasses or supersedes the temple. He's greater than the temple. He is the temple in this new covenant. Next is the exchange that he has with Nicodemus. this ruler of the Pharisees who comes to him. And there are a couple, of, a couple of things we can look at here. This is at the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, for example, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, which flies in the face, I think, of what this good Pharisee thinks he knows about worshiping and following God. Jesus doesn't say anything about practicing the law. Jesus doesn't say anything about memorizing the Torah. He says, you need to be changed. You need to be changed. So Jesus is upending traditional Jewish religious practices by saying, you can't be good enough or religious enough. You must be born again. You must be changed. But in addition to this, Jesus paints himself as the way one is born again by referencing the story of Moses and the Israelites. And this is... This is this kind of bizarre and slightly obscure story that he references, which is found in Numbers 21, where Moses is out in the wilderness with the people of Israel, and the people, as they were prone to do, they're grumbling against Moses, they're grumbling against God. God has provided food for them, he's provided man on the ground for them, he's provided water for them, and they hate it all, like they're sick of it. They don't want any more of it. They're not happy with it. And they start accusing Moses of, man, you've brought us out here to die. Like, this is miserable. And so God sent poisonous snakes, it says, among them. And many people were bitten. But then God tells Moses to fashion an image of a snake. 
and to put it on a pole in front of the people. And he says, anyone who looks at the snake will recover if they are bitten. It's this weird story. But, but then Jesus tells Nicodemus, the beginning of chapter 3, that's what I am. That's who I am. You are hopelessly incapable of saving yourself. You're not satisfied with the things God has given you. You don't even recognize maybe what God has put right in front of you. I'm telling you, you must be born again. And the way that that happens is me. You look to me. I am the doorway. I am the way and the truth and the life. It's the only way that the poison of this world won't kill you. Don't look to being a good Jew. Don't look to being an exemplary Pharisee. Look to the Son of Man. Verse 14 of chapter 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So there's a few ways maybe you could think about this. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the law of Moses, right? You can't be saved just through following the law. You have to look to the Son of Man who is lifted up. And then fourth, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. In this exchange we get here, look with me at verse 25. Chapter 3. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going out to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So this all begins with John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, who were Jewish, more than likely, but they're having a discussion, uh, John the Gospel writer says, with a Jew, meaning someone who is probably not a disciple of John the Baptist. And they're having this discussion over purification. Now, we don't know exactly what that conversation entailed, but the Jews, as we said earlier, had intricate purification laws that involved ritual washing. And these are things that are perhaps akin to baptism in that you can think of maybe baptism as this purification ritual. Um, But often, at least in the law of Moses, um, ritual purification involved things like leprosy and being around lepers and things that were maybe a health risk to the people or sometimes things like post-childbirth or menstruation or things. Those are things you see in the law of Moses. But there had been a number of customs or rules that had been added over the years. For example, at one point in Matthew 15, the Pharisees are upset because Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands appropriately before eating, right? That's not something they got from the law of Moses. It's something that had developed over time. In the law of Moses, the priests were required to wash their hands before they engaged in ritual sacrifice. But that's about it. Um, So we see some of this in the gospel accounts. 
So rules surrounding being unclean and clean were a significant part of Jewish life. John the Baptist, though, caused a stir by offering this baptism, which is, again, ostensibly a purification ritual, but that it was representative of repentance, that that John's call to the people was repent and, and mark your repentance with this sign, with baptism. And, and this ministry, as we said, had been huge. Like People have been coming to John from just all over the place. But now, Jesus' own ministry is starting to supersede that of John the Baptist. Many of Jesus' disciples had been disciples of John. Originally, And now people are coming to Jesus for baptism rather than to John. But John says to his followers, no, 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 this is what is supposed to happen. This is what success looks like for us, guys. He says, I am not the bridegroom. I am not the groom in this wedding ceremony. I'm like the best man. I'm like the friend of the groom, and and my joy is not me being united to the bride. My joy is seeing the bridegroom united to his bride. This is as it should be. He must increase, but I must decrease. So Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, even. A verse that people like to pick out and make a lot out of here is verse 27, where John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And this is an incredible statement of God's sovereignty, and it's true. John is saying that God is the source of all things. But in this context, he's also saying, look, guys, if God wanted me to be the Christ, I would be. Jesus is not drawing more crowds simply because he's better at public speaking or because they're doing a better job of marketing his ministry. No, no, no. He's drawing crowds and they're going out to him because of what God has done, because of what God has given him. Um, And and he he talks of the fact that, that God has given him the spirit without measure. What a great antidote to covetousness, by the way. I have what the Lord wants me to have. You have what the Lord wants you to have. And if I say I don't want what I have, I want what he has, then I'm inadvertently saying, God, you didn't do good enough for me. God, you failed me in some way. It's really no different than the Israelites who had food, water, shelter, connection to the Lord in the wilderness, grumbling and saying, we don't want this. We want better than this. God, you've brought us out here to die. God, you've failed us in some way. Which is why resisting covetousness is one of the Ten Commandments. When you desire what other people have, when what God has given you is just not good enough, God, I'm not satisfied. God, I don't appreciate it. You're also inadvertently telling God that he's failed you and you're believing a lie. You're believing something that's untrue. Let's read on in verse 31. He who comes from above, uh, he who comes from above is above all. 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure." The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So I think what's happening here in this paragraph is something that happened earlier here in chapter 3. If you remember last week, we got to uh, John 3.16, and what we recognized was we don't actually know who's speaking in John 3.16. It's not clear to us. The original text does not have quotation marks. There are no marks of punctuation in the Greek. And so what some people think is that uh, this is just Jesus continuing to speak in John 3.16. He's continuing to speak to Nicodemus. Other people think that, no, this is John the gospel writer who's taking the reins at that point, and he's sort of editorializing on everything that Jesus has said previously to Nicodemus. Either way, it doesn't change the meaning of what's happening here. But a similar thing's going on potentially here at the end of this chapter as well. John the Baptist has clearly been speaking with his disciples, but when we get here to verse 31, it's no longer clear. Is John just in a monologue here, and he's just kind of pontificating and going on and on? Or has John the Gospel writer taken the reins, and he's giving sort of his synopsis or his encapsulation of the situation. Um, if you're reading from the ESV Bible, they make the choice that this is John the Gospel writer who's speaking here starting in verse 31 through the end of the chapter. So you'll notice that the quotation marks close at the end of verse 30. In John's language, I am from the earth, but Jesus is from above. Jesus is not from the earth. This is not an apples to apples kind of thing. You can't compare me to Jesus. I speak in an earthly way because I've not seen the things of heaven. Jesus speaks as one who is from above and he testifies to the realities that he has seen and heard. And most people don't receive him. This is what he said back in chapter 1 in his prologue. He has come to his own, and his own people have not received him. The, the Jews have not received him as Messiah, as the Christ. But because Jesus is from above, he utters not earthly words, but the very words of God, because God has given him the Spirit without measure. The Spirit of God is with him and in him. In fact, God has given, he says, all things into his hand. You could possibly read that as Jesus gives the Spirit without measure, um, but contextually I don't really think that that's what he's saying here, even though that, that, that could be true as well. Jesus certainly does um, send the Spirit, the New Testament says. But in this context, I think we're talking about things that God has given to Jesus, and he has given him the Spirit. The Spirit came at his baptism, right, and descended on him like a dove. God has given him the spirit without measure, and he's given all things into his hand. Verse 36, though, this very last verse, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains 
on him. Let me wrap up with this. The last verse of this chapter puts a bow for me on the entire chapter. Uh, which, remember, includes this exchange with Nicodemus. It includes John 3.16. And at least for me, this verse brings a ton of clarity to this whole thing. And here's the picture that it paints. First of all, we are all under condemnation. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness who were not satisfied with what they had, with the food God had given them, they rebelled against Moses. So we have rejected God's good gifts. And this goes all the way back to the garden. The man and the woman had everything except one thing. Had everything except one thing. And the fact that they didn't have that one thing led them to lust after what was not theirs. It led them to covet So they were cursed and they were expelled from the garden into a world of brokenness. And the Israelites were effectively cursed and poisonous snakes were sent among among them. But Jesus, who is God, is the one we can look to in our brokenness and condemnation. This is a gospel claim that John is making here. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but... God sent his only son, Jesus, into our brokenness and into our condemnation. And through him, we can be healed. This is point two. We look to Jesus for healing. We're all under condemnation. It's what we're born into. But then we look to Jesus for healing, not just physical healing, but sort of like cosmic spiritual healing, healing the divide that has formed between us and God because of our sin, bringing life where there should be death. Jesus is the only source of this. But then most significant for me here is this. Belief equals obedience, We said last week that John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 can make it sound like all I have to do in order to be saved is to intellectually believe in Jesus. I just have to go, yeah, I think Jesus is real. And poof, I'm, I'm, I'm saved. But when he says believe, he doesn't just mean saying something like, yeah, I think Jesus is the Son of God. This is akin to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. In other words, belief in Jesus that does not result in obedient action is not real belief in the schema of the New Testament. Because belief is not simply intellectual assent. It is intellectual assent or heart assent that results in life change. You must be born again. Let me say it again. Belief in Christ that does not result in obedient action is not real belief. Or in James's words, faith without works is what? Dead. James says, you believe in God, good good for you. Even the demons believe in God. Big whoop, you believe in God, right? The difference between one who is in Christ and the demons is not intellectual belief. It's not assent to the reality or the validity of it. It is looking to the Son of Man lifted up as the source of healing and authority. 
It's looking to him as my source of hope. And then fourth, Jesus removes condemnation rather than bringing it. So we're all under condemnation. We look to Jesus for healing. And that belief, that assent to the validity of Christ is a belief that results in life change. I am different because of what I believe. And then because of that, Jesus removes condemnation rather than bringing it. John 3.17 is key here, right after the famous one. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Not believing in Christ, listen, not believing in Christ does not change our station. It doesn't change our situation. It does not add condemnation to our lives. No, he's saying we're already condemned outside of Christ. The only way our station changes is if we look to the Son of Man, who is lifted up like Moses, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You want your condemnation removed? You look to him, not just in saying, I see him, but in making him the Lord and master of your life. In other words, friends, he must increase in all of our lives, and we must decrease. But we can be so afraid of change. We can be so afraid of relinquishing control to him. John the Baptist here, though, man, he embraces it. He embraces it. He celebrates it. A, as God's work, and B, as the metric of success for him. I've done what God sent me to do. And for you and me... Listen, if our identity is in Christ, if Jesus is our identity, then we can handle changes. We can handle seasons melting into other seasons. But if our identity is in our calling or something else, then change can totally upend our lives. Does that make sense? And when I talk about identity being in Christ, here's what I mean. That Jesus literally becomes the thing that defines us. Yes, I'm a husband. Yes, I'm a pastor. Yes, I'm a father. But what should define me is Christ. And if that is truly my primary calling to make him Lord and master of my life, and if that is truly what primarily defines my very existence then whatever else comes as a result of that, he's in full control of. John says, yeah, this is, what we, this is what we were going for, guys. This is what we hoped would happen. Literally, Jesus becoming the thing that defines us, not being a mom, not being a pastor, not being a doctor, not being a school teacher. Not that those things are bad, by the way, but none of those things can save us. None of those things are our hope. They can only sanctify us. If John the Baptist's identity was in his ministry, then the change that Jesus would have, that the change that Jesus was bringing would have been upending, potentially. But that wasn't his hope. And so he's able to respond to the change as inevitable and natural. What if you and I pursued that way of being? So rooted in the authority of Christ 
that all of the other things in our lives that could potentially define us and bring us meaning and value and purpose decrease as he increases. What could that look like for you? So rooted in God's sovereignty and Christ as our identity, the changes of season don't wreck us. What if we each pursued a decreasing of our own unique identity and an increasing of Christ as the thing that truly marks us? How would that change not only your life, but your contentment right now? And how would it change other people's experience of you? Man, the prayer that I have for my life is that as I grow and mature, that that people would literally spend time with me and, and feel like in some way, however imperfectly, that they've spent time with Jesus. Man, I think if we are to be apprentices of Christ, if we are to be his ambassadors in this world, if we're, if we're seeking to share the good news of his gospel in word and deed, that as we aspire to be like him, that other people would encounter us and experience some kind of taste, however imperfectly, of what he is like. May that be the thing that we all aspire to, to literally fade into the background as Jesus comes ever more prominently into the foreground of our life. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. And thank you for the reality that Jesus is the one who is high and lifted up, who we look to and find life and hope. Father, bring us guidance and wisdom through your scriptures, through the church, through our interactions with other disciples of Jesus as we seek to decrease so that you might increase in our lives, Father. Help us to not chase after our own ends, our own pathways, our own pursuits, but instead, Father, help us to know your will and to be obedient to you. Help us to make this connection between belief and obedience. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?